Hello there, fill your boots with answers to my questions. It's me, Michelle Cortens, back with the start of the second season of the Orchard Outlook podcast. After our two-month break, you must be parched for information. Might I even say thirst-quenching information? Because if this year had you interested in trickle irrigation, you're not alone. They told me Nova Scotia had wet weather. They said be ready for rain. Well, the weather had different plants this year with its periods of prolonged dryness. Yes, the sky opened up during a few heavy rainfall events, but otherwise we were wishing for rain. But first, I'm looking forward to your ratings and reviews of this podcast. If they trickle in, I'll be so happy to hear from you. And by the way, I want to wish you a happy International Day of Apples today on October 21st. Okay, today's guest understands root architecture and uses her knowledge to help explain the precision management of water and nutrients in woody perennials. She was the co-recipient of the International Fruit Tree Association Research Award in 2014 and the Distinguished Carlson Lecturer. So joining us is Dr. Denise Nielsen. Hi, Denise. Hi. Thanks for joining me today. Oh, you're very welcome. I'm glad to be here to talk to you. So I'm interested to know what led you to research water and nutrient management in woody perennials, and where are you based out of? I'm located in the Okanagan Valley in British Columbia, and I'm a recently retired research scientist from the Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada Summerland Research Centre. And as to what led me into researching water and nutrient management in wooded perennials, which is such a mouthful, isn't it? I started my PhD research career uh, looking at disturbed soils in Quebec and Ontario, but my spouse um, received a job offer at Summerland, and that caused me to change my program to micronutrient management in apples and later nitrogen and phosphorus management and eventually water management. That's great. And so I brought you out of retirement. Thanks for joining me anyway. Oh, you're not the only person who has brought me out of retirement. In fact, I don't feel retired at all. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, we don't often think about root architecture because it's inaccessible below ground. Um, So I'm hoping you can help us visualize root systems. Does rootstock vigor influence the area that roots tend to forage for water and nutrients? Yeah, so um, when we think about uh, fruit trees, uh, we often don't realize that fruit tree root systems are very sparse when compared to other types of plants. And of all the fruit trees, the common fruit trees, that is, apple trees, tend to be the most sparsely rooted. So if we think of an example of the weedy species that compete for nutrients and water with with trees, grasses may be 1,000 to 10,000 times more densely rooted, and other herbaceous weeds about 50 to 100 times more densely rooted than uh, particularly small apple trees grown on dwarfian rootstocks. The other thing that tells us, actually, is that apple tree roots must be fairly efficient because despite all of this concern about their architecture, um, you know, they manage to produce um, large crops of, of apples. So they're obviously relatively efficient feeders. So the other question that you had was, does rootstock vigor influence the tree roots area uh, where they forage for, for water and nutrients? And it does, uh, it, because it influences the volume of soil that is accessible for the roots. Uh, where they forage for, for water and nutrients. We, d- we did a study where we excavated mature apple trees grown on uh, three rootstocks of, of different vigour, M7, which is quite vigorous, M26, which is a medium vigour, and M9, which is a, a low vigour rootstock. 
and we measured the root density um, in the soil to a depth of about 60 centimetres and a lateral distance of one metre. So what we found was that the M7 roots, the, the more, most vigorous of the root stocks, were distributed throughout that whole volume. M26 roots were more sparse and occupied about two-thirds of the volume. And M9 roots were very sparse and occupied only about one-third of the volume. Okay, interesting. So does root architecture also look different depending on the training system? Like if you've got a more high-density system compared to a traditional low-density spacing? Yes, and this to some degree um, harks back to the previous question about uh, rootstock vigor because usually in low-density systems um, we have rootstocks that are uh, highly vigorous and in high-density planting systems we tend to have dwarfing rootstocks which obviously are much less vigorous and have uh, much smaller root systems. So low-density system where those rootstocks are usually non-size restrictings, roots will develop to fill the spaces available between the trees. So obviously you're going to have a much larger and extensive root system. In a high-density planting, root growth will be restricted by both the size-controlling rootstocks and by intertree competition. Okay, great. Good to know. And so how can the practice of irrigating apple trees influence the development of those root systems? So... Root systems develop in response to nutrient and water availability. Uh, In general, roots are not going to, or a tree is not going to expend energy in developing roots where it cannot access nutrients in particular. So I'm used to working in a semi-arid climate here in British Columbia, and in there, root systems will develop in the soil that is wetted on a regular basis. So if you have an irrigated soil, then where the irrigation water flows, that's where the root system will develop. In a wetter environment, such as you have in in Nova Scotia, roots will tend to be more widely distributed in the soil, and irrigation may have a less profound effect then on on root system architecture. And can, can our irrigation practices then in Nova Scotia, can they have a negative effect on root establishment if we're not using the correct irrigation practices? So really what you're saying is because you have uh, what is normally a, a rain-fed system and you are now using irrigation or you're you know, hoping to use irrigation, um, obviously you've got two different things that potentially might control uh, how, your irrigate, uh, how your root system develops. It's probable that because of the environment that you live in, although you may be using irrigation systems perhaps uh, to get uh, trees started, If the majority of the water comes to the the tree as precipitation, the the root system will develop in response to that. So you're not going to lose anything by starting with irrigation because you're not going to prevent that root development due to precipitation. The danger lies a little bit perhaps in the other direction where you have a root system that has been developed in response to precipitation. But now, because you're uh, applying irrigation, you may not be able to, to reach the whole of that root system uh, with your irrigation practice. However, having said that, root systems are exceedingly plastic. They can respond fairly quickly to changes um, in the water and nutrient supply that, that they are experiencing. So if you had only a part of your root system being actually watered by irrigation, 
then the roots would would respond in that that soil uh, volume that they that is being wetted. Uh, the peripheral roots that were not receiving moisture, the, the ephemeral roots would probably turn over fairly quickly, but the, the structural roots would be there for future ephemeral root development for um, taking up water and nutrients. So what's the wetting pattern of a trickle irrigation system? The, the series of questions that you asked after this, each one of them, you know, could be a lecture in themselves. <laughs> uh, but uh, anyway, um, so I've, I've tried to sort of hit the high points, but I, I think your listeners might want to delve into this a bit more, in, in a bit more detail, if it tweaks their, their interest. This really depends on um, the tree spacing, the emitter spacing, and soil texture. So, uh, for example, in a high-density system, it's useful to aim for true to drip emitters per tree, and if the trees are spaced greater than one meter within the row, and the emitters are not evenly distributed along the row, then the wetted zone will not be continuous, and obviously then the root system will not uh, necessarily move into, into the areas that are not wetted. If the trees are planted at one meter or less and the emitters are evenly spaced, then there should be a continuous wetted zone along the row. The usual shape of the wetted zone as with depth, so as the water moves into the soil, is a cone. So it, it, basically the, the drip is, is a point source of water and it broadens out as it enters into the soil. The shape of that cone depends on the infiltration rate and how quickly water moves through the soil. And I think this is in, fairly intuitive. In general, coarser textured soils such as uh, sandy soils or sandy loam soils will have a narrower, deeper cone than fine textured soils such as clays or clay loams or silty clay loams or whatever kinds of fine textured soils you have. So even though it doesn't look very wet on the top of the soil, we know that it's um, dispersing more as it gets lower down to the, the broader base of that cone? Exactly. Okay. So if a region gets adequate total rainfall during a growing season, can irrigation offer any benefits? Uh, yes, and, and I'm going to um, look at two points with respect to this. First, climate change and, the vari- and then variability of water supply. Our understanding of what is normal weather for a region is rapidly changing, and I think that goes for everywhere. So areas that previously had relatively reliable rainfall may be increasingly seeing the occurrence of hot, dry spells due to climate change. I think this has been experienced in eastern Canada, and what we are finding here is that we're getting even hotter and drier spells than we normally uh, were getting in, in previous years. So this Extreme weather and erratic weather is very difficult for farmers to respond to. That change in weather is, is, is attributable to climate change. So I think the way we have to think about this is that the capital investment in tree fruit orchards is really large and not providing supplemental irrigation is increasingly risky. One of the things about this is that, uh, and again, this depends on the province you're in, but it's not always possible to obtain uh, water for irrigation and sort of moving into that into the the reliability of the water supply beyond precipitation. So um, this depends upon the jurisdiction that you're working in. 
In many provinces, water licenses are required when water is being used for irrigation purposes for both surface and groundwater sources. And individuals may be awarded licenses or water may be supplied through a water purveyor. Now, I think the water purveyor concept is probably um, more true for Western Canada than it is for Eastern Canada. I looked up on the web what is required in Nova Scotia and approval is required for both groundwater and surface water withdrawals. And there are guides available on the web for that purpose. Removing a large volume of water from the surface of groundwater is quite a process uh, that has to be gone through in Nova Scotia, including uh, proving the reliability of the water source effects on, on the environment and on uh, downstream users. Uh, and your, your listeners may be already aware of this, but it, sometimes it's not just as easy as, as saying, well, I'm going to start irrigating now. There's often a lot of jurisdictional process to go through. That's a very good point. So what can be the effect, though, of some kind of drought stress on apple trees during establishment? So because we have this hot, dry climate, we're able to do experiments that actually can show us that, you know, the, the responses to irrigation and lack, and lack of irrigation. And in our experience, one of the most significant factors in poor performance after planting is lack of moisture. As we know, water stress causes uh, the stomates and the leaves to close, which means that the trees cannot absorb CO2 for growth. Uh, and the, another factor in this is that tree roots uh, may have difficulty in accessing nutrients in dry soils because water plays an important role in transporting nutrients to the plant root. You know, many times uh, we have seen this happen. Now growers will rush to get, get trees um, planted and then realize that the soil is exceedingly dry because it's been a dry spring or we haven't had much uh, snow or for a variety of reasons. And all of a sudden, they're in need of their irrigation systems being up and running and, uh, and in, in some cases may not have even yet installed the irrigation system for the planting. So if that's an issue, then it's important to have your irrigation system in place before you plant and to plant as early in the spring as you can, because the later you plant, then the more likelihood of having hot, dry weather uh, that really stresses young trees. This year in Nova Scotia, we did have a fairly dry and hot summer. Uh, we did get some rainfall that pretty much came all at once when the sky opened up. But yeah, we did have some dry weather. We did start to see some nutrient deficiencies in some of the sandier sites. So definitely those new plantings did did have some challenges this year. Yes. Yeah. So for apple trees, what are the critical growth stages during which drought stress can severely reduce yield and quality? So uh, because, as I mentioned earlier, apple trees have such relatively sparse root systems, they are very vulnerable to water stress at all stages of development. Water uptake begins as the first leaves emerge and, and increases as the canopy develops. During the critical period after full bloom, Water and nutrient stress can affect cell division, which influences final fruit size and potentially fruit quality. An important component of this is calcium inflow into the fruit, which is critical at this time in order to reduce the incidence of bitter pit and other storage disorders. In our experience and in other semi-arid regions, calcium inflow continues into the fruit throughout the growing season. But in humid regions such as Nova Scotia, reduced inflow has been reported for 
the, the fruit enlargement size of the apple fruit development. So that calcium inflow during cell division, that's the sort of the first six weeks after full bloom is, uh, is really important and water stress can affect that. Drought stress during fruit expansion stage can also reduce fruit growth for other, other reasons uh, that is not just associated obviously with, with uh, fruit calcium, but just because of the lack of access to CO2 and, and growth. So interesting. Yeah, and when you mentioned the calcium uptake, I was thinking about all of the honeycrisps that we grow here and how it's particularly um, prone to bitter pits. So, uh, so yeah, we would be vulnerable if we had some some dry weather early on after bloom, is what you're saying? Yeah, I, yeah. It's, I mean, the jury's out on on calcium inflow into the fruit, but we there is some suggestion that uh, water stress can actually cause some movement out of the fruit for calcium, but the early research did suggest that most of the calcium that moved into the fruit occurred during the cell division time, which is usually about six weeks after full bloom. But as I mentioned, that work was done in, in humid regions in the New York States, in North America, and in, and in England. And we, we don't find that the same response in the semi-arid West. Uh, we seem to see calcium inflow throughout the growing season into the fruit. Having said that, whether that is a function of the fact that we're irrigating, I don't know. But it, it's, uh, it's an interesting question. So what would you recommend to someone who's using irrigation for the first time? So this is one of these questions that I could take an hour to answer. <laughs> Really, the most important consideration is to install a well-designed irrigation system. I would suggest if you have access to a certified irrigation designer, make use of them. If you're considering designing your own system, um, and I'm not sure whether Nova Scotia has something already developed, but the province of British Columbia produced an excellent trickle irrigation manual quite a few years ago now, probably at the end of maybe 1990, something like that, 1989, 1990, but it's still good. And it's avail available from the website waterbucket.ca. I've got a copy of the manual. I am very impressed with it. I've been trying to find the time to read through it, and it, it's got a lot of great information. Yeah, it does, yeah. So the second point I would like to make is, if you're going into this business of irrigation at this point in time, you're not trying to build on an already established irrigation system with older methodology, which a lot of our growers have to fight with that issue. You can, you can go in and, and make a really modern, up-to-date irrigation system. So for your irrigation controller, I would definitely get an irrigation controller that will allow for sensor-controlled and automatic irrigation. You may not want to use that in, initially, but it's really useful if you can get something else, a sensor or information from sensors to help you make the decision about how to irrigate. Two manufacturers that I know of that have used their systems that are, are, uh, have reliable controllers that are easy to use and do allow for sensors are Rainbird and Hunter. If drip irrigation is going to be used, I would suggest using pressure compensating inline drip tubing. Um, if you're going to just use a single line, and if you're working in a high-density system, you would only use a single line. 
I would attach it to the post about 20 centimeters or whatever's convenient for you above the ground. Uh, this really makes inspection for flood emitters and repairs easy. The other thing is that depending on your source of water, it's really important that you get a good, good filtration system ahead of your, of your uh, irrigation system. This basically helps to reduce emitter plugging. Now, another point that I didn't actually write here, but which is also very important and may affect your license application, if you have to make an application, is that if your irrigation system is any, in any way attached to or could influence a domestic water system, then you must have a backflow preventer to prevent backflow from your irrigation system into the domestic water supply. Okay. So I thought it was interesting that you mentioned sensors earlier on. Is the benefit of that that, you know, sometimes growers might uh, err on the side of irrigating a little too late if we come into a dry spell, so the sensor might pick it up a little sooner? Yeah, there's many, um, many reasons for using sensors. And it really comes into the next uh, question that we're, going to talk, that we're going to talk about, which is irrigation scheduling. But yes, this, this technology is available, it's, it's getting cheaper, it, you know, it's getting easier to use, and you know, there's also the possibility of having your sensors uh, set up so that you can have a signal go to a smartphone. You know, there's lots and lots of, of, of uh, reasons for making use of sensors. Okay, and can you explain what irrigation scheduling is? Yes, uh, another very large topic. <laughs> you know, it's, it, whatever I say here is just scratching the surface of irrigation scheduling. So it's really a simple concept. It's basically the practice of applying water to meet plant requirements. Two factors uh, control the amount of water required. The rate of, of uh, potential evapotranspiration that's imposed by the weather, temperature and wind speed being the ma major drivers. And there's the canopy size or leaf area of the plant. So it's very difficult to measure evapotranspiration directly, but we can get indirect estimates of what evapotranspiration has been over a period of time by looking at weather station information. That information might be also available from an ag weather service if you have one. That information is used then to estimate potential evapotranspiration which is then modified by something called a crop coefficient, which depends on the canopy size. So just as an example, for a given potential evapotranspiration, the smaller leaf area in the spring would require less water to be applied to, to, to meet plant needs. If the leaf area is bigger, then obviously the plant is transpiring more. So um, any rainfall then that has occurred during the period between irrigations would then be subtracted from that estimate of evapotranspiration or the volume that is to be applied. So now I'm going to try and talk a little bit about calculations, and this is this is uh, this is difficult. But uh, again, the manuals and online information that I mentioned will help clarify this for people if it becomes as clear as mud, which it may very well be. Uh, so ET and rainfall are given in depth, millimeters or inches. And in order to determine you know, how much water 
uh, needs to be applied. We need to translate that into a volume of water. So I'm just going to give a, an example of, of, of how to go about doing this. So in a drip irrigated situation, we only need to water within the tree row. So we discount the area between the rows. Um, we're not going to water the grass panel, for example. So if we have, for example, trees that are spaced one meter apart in the row, and we have a one meter herbicide strip, then the area to be irrigated would be a very convenient one meter square. If the daily ET was calculated to be six millimeters with no rainfall, then the volume to be applied to the tree would be six millimeters times one meter square, and you can convert the six millimeters to 0.6 centimeters and the one meter squared to 10,000 centimeters squared, which makes the calculation much easier. But what you really need to know is that that turns out to be six liters of water that's required. So if we apply one millimeter of water to one meter squared, that is one liter. So say we had for our tree two two liter an hour emitters, the irrigation system would then need to run one and a half hours to supply the required water. So with irrigation scheduling, we determine how frequently we're going to apply the water. So say we're applying it daily, or and that we'll talk about that a little bit later, but say we're applying it daily, and what we're going to apply is the amount of water that the, the plant used since yesterday, because we're going to back calculate our evapotranspiration. Then the amount of time that the irrigation system runs basically determines how much water is applied. So we don't necessarily run the irrigation system the same time every day. We, we run it in order to supply the amount of water that the plant used the previous day. So is that clear? Yes, thank you for the example. That was great. Okay. okay. Now, there's a second way to schedule irrigation, and that's to use soil moisture measurements. And there are many systems out there which can be used to measure soil moisture, tensiometers, capacitance probes, TDR probes. You, you can, again, go and look online and find many commercial systems available for um, measuring soil moisture. And most of these can now be hooked up to an irrigation controller. So in that case, then, what we do is we have a reference moisture content. We have two references, one below which we don't want the soil moisture to, to fall, and then an upper level, which is the amount of water to fill up uh, the, the uh, storage capacity of the soil. So water then is applied once we, we, we reach the lower level of water that we are below which we don't want to to drop, water is applied to fill up the soil to that, that uh, reference moisture content. As I said initially, the concept is simple. It's applying water to meet plant demand. And it's also doing it over a period of time rather than um, kind of waiting for a drought period and then trying to supply water quickly, right? It's kind of keeping up with the, the demands of the plant. Yes. How does the irrigation timing and frequency compare for something like a coarse sandy textured soil and a fine clay textured soil? Okay. So again, this is a very large topic and I'll only address drip irrigation requirements. And assuming that your growers are mainly interested in micro irrigation and not um, impact sprinkler irrigation, and because you talked about trickle, then I'm only going to talk about drip. So in general, 
coarse textured soils require more frequent irrigation because they have a smaller available water storage capacity than fine textured soils. In general, we have found it beneficial to set the irrigation uh, controller to irrigate daily in coarse textured soils, and we have a lot of coarse textured soils. For finer textured soils, we may need only to irrigate every three or four days. The length of time, and this is going back to the point I mentioned earlier, that the irrigation system runs is determined by the plant needs, right, the ET, or the volume of water required to so restore soil moisture to an optimum level. If it has been raining and the soil moisture is already full and we've already built in the amount of rain uh, or, the, or precipitation into our ET um, calculation, then no irrigation will be applied. So this is where using sensors or weather data to schedule and control your irrigation system really pays off. Because you don't have, if, it's, if it's been raining and there's been sufficient moisture already applied to, the, to the, the plant and the soil through rainfall, then your irrigation system won't switch on. How does granular nitrogen fertilizer application compare to something like fertigation? Just going to give a little bit of an explanation of, of nitrogen behavior uh, in, in woody perennials and, and in apples in particular. So there are two factors that are important for good nitrogen management. One is the timing of applications to meet plant demand, and the second is keeping nitrogen in the root zone for as long as possible. So in the fall, apple trees withdraw nitrogen from the leaves and store it in woody tissues above and below ground in the branches, the trunk, and the roots. The stored end comprises around 50% of the tree nitrogen at that point. In the spring, the stored end is remobilized and is used to support spur leaf and flower bud growth and early shoot leaf growth. Very little nitrogen is taken up from the soil until after full bloom. We've done many studies, uh, myself and others around the world, looking at the timing of nitrogen uptake uh, using uh, 15N labeled nitrogen. Consequently, applying nitrogen before that time is potentially wasteful, particularly if there is a lot of precipitation. Similarly, nitrogen applications after mid-season can have a detrimental effect on harvest and storage quality of fruit. So we, in our experiments and our recommendations, we apply nitrogen by fertigation at the rate of 20 to 40 kilograms per hectare per year for the six week period after full bloom. We find that this is the safest in, in terms of not supplying in before it's required and cutting it off basically after cell division has ended so that we don't get excess nitrogen in the fruit which can have potentially detrimental effects on fruit coloring and other fruit quality issues. We avoid broadcast end applications. We've monitored soil nitrogen on the fertigation with drip and broadcast with sprinkler irrigation. After one week, the broadcast end had been leached out of the soil. And this is the issue, that nitrogen is really a very mobile nutrient. And even if you're applying an ammonia-based form or urea, it can be rapidly converted to the highly soluble nitrate form. Some studies have identified some benefits from slow-release fertilizers, and these are usually a polymer and or sulfur-coated urea. 
And also other studies have demonstrated some um, efficacy of nitrification inhibitors. Organic forms of N, for example, composts, may also release slowly, but there is always the possibility of N content being too high during fruit expansion. Manures, and we've had a lot of experience with applying manures, in this case to raspberries in Fraser Valley, disastrous consequences uh, tend to leach large amounts of nitrates. And if you have a vulnerable aquifer, as they do in Abbotsford in the Fraser Valley, then you can be in really serious trouble. If leaf nitrogen levels are low in the summer, then foliar urea may be beneficial if applied before leaf fall at that time when nitrogen is being withdrawn from the leaves and being stored by the tree. But if you have good nitrogen levels in your leaves, then you don't really get much of a benefit from supplemental fall urea. Well, thank you so much for coming out of retirement to, to share all of this information. I really appreciate it. And I know the growers will too. Well, you're very welcome. And it was actually very enjoyable. Follow me on Twitter at NSTreeFruit and follow Perennia on Facebook and Twitter at NSPerennia. Thanks to Perennia for leaking this episode into the podcast scene. Thank you to Patty Ryan for dropping onto our website to post the episode and to Rachel Brown for flowing through the editing. And of course, thanks to growers who wield the power of water for crop health. Here's a fun fact. An entire filing cabinet of old files was just found. It's like gold, people. So much old trial work that was almost lost in the abyss of time has now been given a new home. Bye. Thanks for listening.